Hello and welcome to Never Marry a Mitford, the podcast about pop culture from the past and historical heroines. I'm Amelia. And I'm Sarah. We're back after a short break because we had technical problems as I stupidly updated my laptop and it got rid of Audacity, so we had no way of recording any podcasts. And then Christmas happened and then we forgot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we're here now, it's back, it's 2020, it's a new year, it's exciting. And this episode we're going to be talking about the ITV Jane Austen adaptation of Sanderton and our historical heroines are the pre-Raphaelite sisterhood. Sanderson is an unfinished novel by the English novelist Jane Austen, adapted for TV by Andrew Davis, who also adapted the Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice. Sanderton follows Charlotte Haywood as she spends a holiday in the fishing village of Sanderton. There she meets the moody and mysterious Sidney Parker. ITV showed the first and now only season last year. So, Amelia, what did we think of Sanderton? I think Sanderton was a frustrating one because it had a lot of potential, I thought, to be really excellent. And because the novel itself only consists really of one chapter that takes up about the first half of the first episode of this series, because Jane Austen died before she could finish it. And I think Mm. the main difficulty is that Charlotte Hayward, who's the main character, the main heroine, is quite boring yeah, she doesn't have a huge amount of personality, and the central love interest Sydney. None of that relationship really gets going until much later on in the series. By which time, there's no time to explore it and no time to look into it, and then it's over before it started, basically. I think as well with Sanderson and especially with Charlotte and Sydney's relationship, I felt that they were expecting the audience to go in what like looking for the archetypes of the characters. So almost like you went in identifying, oh, she's Elizabeth Bennet or she's the Emma and he's the Mr. Knightley or he's the Darcy. And it relied so much on the goodwill of the audience rather than actually setting up a romance between two people who you really rooted for. And I found that actually quite just it it almost for me in an obnoxious way as a viewer made me not want to root for them because I was kind of like no this is what you're you're relying on me to do a lot of work here as a viewer I want you to do that work for me I want to root for them and you're not doing anything to make me do that it Mm. was a really weird viewing experience for me No, I agree. And I think their relationship was almost like they'd shoved it in and gone, oh, well, you know, oh, we've got to have somebody fall in love with somebody handsome and oh, well, they'll do. And it was never developed. It came from nowhere. They hated each other, but with not even like a Lizzie and Mr. Darcy kind of all, they hate each other, except he doesn't really hate her. He loves her. There was no interest there or anything. And there's no, there wasn't very much sympathy for Sydney. I felt. There was a weird thing where it was sort of talked about that he had been very highly involved in the slave trade at some point but then it was sort of like oh no he wasn't but it wasn't really explained why he wasn't it was just no okay don't worry about that modern viewers he he's not a bad guy that was the end of that discussion and it was like okay fine we'll, we'll gloss over that I guess if you're going to make us gloss over it what it lacked as well was the satirical elements that Jane Austen has I think a lot of people as we I'm sure we talked about in the Jane Austen special from a couple of years ago a lot of people sort of have now see Jane Austen as like frilly romancy nonsense stuff which it is but that was all set up on purpose to satirize regency society you don't get any of that in Sanderton particularly what I imagine that you would have done had Jane Austen finished her novel it's if you read I've read the first I read the book Sanderton it's very short and it's already gearing up for that kind of story as it's going to be another one where you know social climbing not social climbing but somebody who's 
oh, what's it, Tom Parker, who mm. is Charlotte's kind of benefactor he's the one that takes her in and takes her to Sanderton to live they're trying to establish Sanderton as at that time the new Brighton basically yeah it's kind of like a holiday camp isn't it yeah that's what they want they want to introduce a new British bathing town and that be the new yeah the new the new Brighton or the new Margate or that kind of destination at that time to be very luxurious and very chic and they're trying to the most important people down there regency center parks yeah regency center park maybe one up from center park <laughs> i don't know i don't know maybe yeah probably regency oh, it center felt park. very center park we should recap the plot as well of yeah it's taken away from her home and taken away to sanderton as part of like tom parker and i think as well what causes a disconnect for me was that a driver of the plot was the financial standing of sanderton yeah. and i was just kind of like i really don't I don't really care that Tom Parker hasn't done his accounts or his insurance properly. I feel <laughs> I'm not really interested in this. <laughs> like it felt very, very plotty. This has happened to drive forward conflict and to drive forward things that are happening to the characters rather than the plot being about the characters. Yeah, there was a lot of peril on ladders. Like somebody yeah. basically the foreman who's in charge is called James Stringer and he and Charlotte and he's very handsome. He and Charlotte <laughs> kind of have they are the ones that have the free son, and you're like, ditch Sydney, go out yeah. with the dishy builder guy. But his yeah. dad is constantly like falling off ladders and stuff, and there's a bit where he nearly dies because he falls off a ladder and then breaks his leg, and they have to set it back, and it's all very traumatic. And Charlotte suddenly magically knows medicine at that point, and you're like, okay, fine, she's what nineteen and a girl who's from a tiny farmhouse, but she knows how to set a leg back. Sure, mm. and it there's just. There's lots of stuff like that where you were actually the couple I was rooting for was James and Charlotte because they were cute and he was nice. But and also I think one of the main problems that I had with it is that a lot of the time you read a Jane Austen novel because you're going to get a happy ending usually for some yeah. people at least. Yes, um, and as Marianne Key says, it's just rude not to give people a happy ending. Yeah, barely anybody gets a happy ending in this TV show. Charlotte doesn't. Sydney doesn't. James doesn't because James's dad dies in a fire as a result of the insurance issues. But also, James gets offered a very prestigious apprenticeship with a London architecture firm. He wants to be an architect. And his dad is like, no, working as a foreman was good enough for me, so it'll be good enough for you when you can't better your life, which seems a really weird backwards message to give <clears throat> like a modern audience now, especially because that hasn't come from Jane Austen's book at all. Andrew Davies wrote that in 2019. So mm. it, it doesn't, it, that just made no sense to me where he's like trying to deliberately keep his son down. Anyway, once his dad dies, he doesn't go to London to do the apprenticeship. He just stays and is sad and he doesn't get with Charlotte and Charlotte doesn't get with Sydney. And the only people that end up sort of happy is Esther, who is actually one of the best characters. She's really interesting. Yeah, I agree. Because Esther is very cold when you meet her. There's Anne Reed plays the grand dame of Sanderton and she's the really wealthy lady. And then there's her niece, Clara, and her nephew, Edward, and Esther, who are have a weird incest. It's not really incest because they're not blood-related. They are step-brother and sister. Yeah, it's a bit cruel intentions, isn't it? But Yeah, it's creepy. And Andrew Davis likes that. There was that whole weird undercurrent in War and Peace, which was a bit gross. Than that yeah. did. But anyway, Esther and her brother Edward are seen to begin at the beginning to seem that they are just money grabbing, they're after their aunt's money. And actually Clara is the who is the her other niece is more like that. Like Clara deliberately burns herself 
to mm-hmm. get back in the favour of her aunt because she'd got in trouble for something and then burns herself on a copper bath to kind of garner some sympathy. It doesn't really work. But Esther is hounded by this man called Lord Babington who's in love with her. Hounded is not the right word because no, he's, he's, he's very persistent. Very, yeah, he's persistent. And, and when I was watching it, I was a little bit like... Hmm, as a modern viewer, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this because we know as a viewer that Esther almost needs some persuading to even have the self-esteem to accept love. Like, it would take somebody very committed to her and very understanding and empathetic towards her. But that language of empathy is not in Lord Babington's character. It's in his behaviours if you choose to interpret it that way. But yeah, in another interpretation, it can be seen that he's very pushy. I was really unsure about that. I wanted to believe that his intentions were because he understood what emotional support she needed. But I don't know if that was actually what was going on. At the beginning, I I would have said no. But towards the end, when he sort of steps back and then comes back when she realises that she does need emotional support, I was sort of thought, oh, actually, you know, he's obviously he's not just being a kind of overly pushy not taking no for an answer then they do actually end up being right for each other but it takes her such a long time and it's also because she's in love with her stepbrother who's not in love with her and she has to have her heart broken to realize that actually there's somebody who will be kind to her and love her and look after her Mm. and she's the only one that ends up with a happy ending her brother edward doesn't he also has the most he's supposed to be like the villain but it's really he's really dull. He doesn't do anything bad. He just sort of stands around looking like posh and blonde and a bit evil. And they yeah. sort of have... Although there is a bit where he and Clara have very... Well, not very graphic because it was on at 8 o'clock. But graphic for ITV Sunday night, 8 o'clock drama. Sex on the floor of, a, of the Great yes. Hall. And yes. it's really weird. It's like, where did this come from? Yes. I think the problem is, is that all the characters just felt very, very one-dimensional. Clara was really one-dimensional. She's just a bitch and evil. And Esther wasn't one-dimensional, actually. I think Esther really grew on you as a character and you grew to really sympathise with her. Yeah, she was an anti-heroine, wasn't she? Yeah. Because she- Well, no, she wasn't even an anti-heroine. She was just complex. And she was actually the only one of that subplot that didn't really care about the money that much. Yeah, and she changed throughout the course of the series as well. She went from not being able to accept love to being able to accept love from somebody who loved her. Yeah, so she really should have been the heroine. Charlotte was very beige as a character. She was. She was very beige and... And I think I think also what we were saying before about not really understanding her relationship with Sydney. I, as a result, I really because I wasn't rooting for them. So for about six episodes, he just didn't like her. It was really rude, like rude without any kind of motivation as well. And then in the last two episodes, he suddenly changes and he's in love with her. And it was just all a bit like rushed. And it was like you've planted no seeds here. You can see why she's into him. He's Leo James is incredibly handsome. There's a scene where he erupts out of the water completely naked. You can totally see why she's into him. But why is he into her? You see her play cricket in one scene where she's suddenly like Jessica Ennis. That's the only thing that really is there to demonstrate that she's someone he's attracted to. And I found that difficult as well. This has just come out of nowhere. Yeah, I agree. And it was... She actively dislikes Sidney and not even in a Mr. Darcy way where you can... 
But and even that, and I know we've definitely talked about it before, but I'm going to say it again. It's the whole satirical point of Pride and Prejudice is that Lizzie kind of realises that she's in love with Mr. Darcy once she goes to his giant house. Like, yeah. And that's the whole... But, and, but there was none of even... There wasn't any of that. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that a, a lot of the time people are like, well, why do women fancy Mr. Darcy so much? Why do people like him? Because he was written by a woman as a romantic char- as a romantic character with flaws and he's not perfect by a long shot but that's why and a lot of that comes from what well, Jane Austen clearly knew what women fancied and what people liked so that's where that comes from whereas Andrew Davis just doesn't put any of that in I think because he's a man he's very good actually at adapting characters that are already there Mm. His The War and Peace that they did was amazing. Pride and Prejudice that he did is really great. But he's obviously not as strong, I don't think, I haven't seen loads of his stuff, at bringing to life his own characters. Because he is basically given his own characters in these things. That you, that everybody gets pretty much a sentence in the book. So we never really get to know them at all from Jane Austen's point of view. Yeah, I think as well there's a huge task that he's asked to do, which is to essentially take the expectation of an audience who are going in for a Jane Austen adaptation to provide them with not only the safety of feeling like they've watched it but the loveliness of Pride and Prejudice is that the storyline the the template of the story has been repeated so many times that you know the rhythm of it you know where it's going to go and those moments of when Mr Darcy proposes to Elizabeth the first time and they have their argument you know in the Andrew Davis version he storms into that room that she's in when she's visiting Charlotte and Mr Collins and you know they have that conversation and he's like my conduct (laughs) yeah (laughs) and then you know we as an audience, we know that story. And even if you've never seen Pride and Prejudice or never read it, you've still read a, or watched a romantic comedy and Bridget Jones or whatever. You know the rhythm of like, oh, they hate each other at the beginning, but slowly he unveils himself to be Keir Starmer. <laughs> and I think with Sanderton, some, I think somebody described it in one of the articles about it, almost like a copy and paste from loads of different Jane Austen adaptations. But also it's not just the text they're copying and pasting from it's the expectation of the text I think that is why it feels so disjointed and why like what I was saying earlier about as a viewer it felt like a really odd experience because you you were almost being asked to bring all that to watching Sanders it wasn't a good standalone piece of work and Mm -hmm. I don't think it therefore worked as an adaptation or or whatever we want to call it it's not it's not fan fiction but it's not an adaptation it's a continuation. An interpretation, an interpretation of what could have been. I feel like it's such like a hard thing to analyse because there's so much going on in it which affects how you, how we watched it and what we took from it as well. And I think the treatment of Georgiana's character is particularly interesting mm. in that you were given this an heiress you know she's and she's angry with her situation but you never really understand like she hates sydney but it's never fully well it can't no it, no that's it's not, true. not explained is it well not it sort of is but it isn't it's because he it's it's implied that it's because he wouldn't let her marry otis who she was in love with but then it's also sort of not to do with that at all so it's never fully explained why she's so angry with him i mean apart from dragging her away from the caribbean to London where it's cold and making you live with these weirdos 
Yeah, so when I watched it, I remember thinking, like, I wonder if this is, like, a Jane Eyre situation. And he's, like, Mr. Rochester, and he's brought her over to England to marry her. Or, like, they are married, or he married her sister, and suddenly he's, like, the heir to her fortune or something. Yeah, I just thought, there's something else going on here, and he's going to turn out to be evil. But no. He's no, just, it just uh, he's just like, oh, he's just a bit grumpy. And it's... Yeah. it's like, oh, fine. But yeah, they, they made, and I remember reading lots of articles at the time of being like, this is amazing. You know, it's a great representation of like black people in the Regency period. And it's not something that you would usually see. And then they just don't do anything with it. She gets kidnapped and then has a like a non ending where you just, I don't even remember what happens to her. Nothing, I don't think. Yeah, I think as well, like we, maybe we have to factor in that this isn't really a complete piece of work either because, you know, there was an anticipation for a second season, which now isn't going to happen. Yeah. So I wonder if a lot of those storylines were kind of being held. Potentially. Until... But it's definitely, the, the ending very much leads you to believe that you're going to get a second series. Yeah, it's a cliffhanger. because it you know, Well, literally, there aren't cliffs. And what's going to happen to Sanderton? Like, I mean, who cares? Are they going to survive that fire? Uh-huh. oh that fire always oh, a fire <laughs> and I think one of the other really key things that's wrong with it is Cover just like destroy I know it. sorry <laughs> but like the one of the other key things that's wrong with it I think is re- that's really missing from a lot of there is no levity whatsoever it's like no. All of the really bad, sad bits of Jane Austen novels just mashed into one thing. And there's none of the funny bits that happen in between. It's like they forgot that that was supposed to happen. And they're like, no, you're just getting a straight up drama now. Like shit stuff happens every single week. And it it is. It's like they just extracted all the bad bits where people get colds or they fall over or Marianne's going to die. And then they just smash it all together into one thing and leave out all the fun. It's like, oh, this is very depressing and quite like... It's almost turned into... I mean, that's like when you make the point about Jane Eyre, it feels like it could be more of a Bronte story yeah, than Jane Austen. It it's like, oh, it's so bleak. But also, like, I, I... But that's the bit about the financial standing of Sanderton that I was just like, oh, come on. Like, <laughs> like nobody... I don't want to know about that. I don't care unless it affects why somebody's got to get married. Like, <laughs> And they all go to balls, and then the balls are really depressing. <laughs> like, yeah, they are really just, everyone's just sad all the time. Like, cheer up. The oh, only fun one is Big I, Sue's from Peep Show. Yes, I was just about to say we should talk about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the Deus Ex Machina that is Sophie Winkleman, Lady Windsor. I was half on my phone a lot, like throughout <laughs> some of these episodes because I was a little bit bored. <laughs> like, when she would turn up, I would hear her voice and just like, like look what? up and be like, "What?" Well, when you first like, encounter her, she. She's sitting by a giant plant pot <laughs> and Charlotte's like oh I'm like, uh, and then they have a chat and they become best friends and then she finds out oh how happy news that this that Sophie Winkleman is really 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 rich and wants to be like friends with the Prince of Wales and wants to patronize Sanditon so she brings her down for this regatta and then she's the one who says to her oh you know you have to wait because Sydney's fiance comes back, who married someone else, and then her husband dies. And this is when Charlotte's realised that she's in love with Sydney. She's like, "You've got to wait for him." Blah blah blah, all this stuff. And then it all. Then that's when Sydney's like, "Yeah, I'm in love with you," and that lasts for five minutes, and then it doesn't. But that's all Big Suze's idea. It was just all over the shop, is what I would say. You should say the financial situation at Sanderton does have a have a broader plot point that it means that Sydney 
then has to go off in a kind of nice reversal of gender roles has to then go and make an advantageous marriage to win back yeah the money to um, his ex-fiance to his ex-fiance whose husband has conveniently died. died everyone does a lot there's a lot of convenient stuff that happens in this yeah. one and i think yeah I, I feel like we've probably absolutely slated it enough but it, yeah. it, this is possibly the first time as well on the podcast where we've been unanimously really negative about something. I Usually know, we're pretty like, I, it's great, it's brilliant, I, it's, I loved it. But I think it's a really hard thing, like we said earlier, that because it, it's weighed down with so many expectations that makes it so easy to like unpick as well. It was a perfectly serviceable Sunday night drama. That's it. In my head, it wasn't helped by the fact that the last big ITV Sunday night drama that I watched was Vanity Fair, which oh, was, mine was Downton, so, so nothing can ever come close. Yeah, but like I was <laughs> full on upset. I think Vanity Fair is one of the best TV shows that was on. It like and of the last decade, I loved it so much. So mm. I think in comparison, it just looked like shit. I was like, it's so <laughs> rubbish. In it's not Vanity Fair. Nothing's fun. It doesn't feel modern. It doesn't feel fresh. Like nothing. Yeah. So. That's 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 that. There's not yeah. going to be a season. We don't, killed it. So we, yeah, don't bother catching up. It's also just started in America, so it's on PBS Masterpiece. This episode, our heroines are the pre-Raphaelite sisterhood. So, 170 years ago, after the first pictures were exhibited by the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood in 1849. The pre-Raphaelite sisters at the National Portrait Gallery explored the overlooked contribution of 12 women to this iconic artistic movement. Amelia and I went to see it in November? Yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) And the exhibition finished on the 26th of January this year. The women in it featured included Joanna Wells, Fanny Cornforth, Marie Spitali Stillman, Evelyn de Morgan, Christina Rossetti, Georgiana Byrne-Jones, Effie Millay, Elizabeth Siddle, Maria Zambacco, Jane Morris, Annie Miller, and Fanny Eaton. So, Amelia, why did we want to talk about the pre-Raphaelite sisterhood as our heroines this episode? I think because they are so intrinsically linked with the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, but I think they are, several of them were very talented artists in their own right, and they, or not, not even... Several were very talented painters, but they were also people like Jane Morris, who was very talented at embroidery and making uh, objects and that kind of thing as well. So I think they they all had their own talent. And Christina Rossetti was a very talented poet and writer as well. Yeah, so I think the exhibition was really good at bringing them out of the shadow a little bit of the men. But I think the conclusion that we would probably come to, and we'll talk about why in a minute, is that the exhibition, although why it was it was great at sort of throwing the spotlight on these women that you don't necessarily hear about or don't get to see their artistic endeavours. The exhibition didn't manage to fully extract them from the men that they were married to or worked with or were muses for. There was still very much the link. And I think that was only natural when you frame something as a pre-Raphaelite whatever is that the yeah. two are very close and that they you know a lot of the time these women were famous because they sat for these men you were never going to get away with not mentioning the men at all the only thing that draws these women together are the men so it's not like they were a group of artists that were united in the same way that the pre-raphaelite brotherhood was it's more that these were the women like you said like they were almost stood behind them that's the only reason why these women are linked together really 
Yeah, and interestingly, I think the choice of calling it a sisterhood is interesting because a lot of the women were, uh, well, I'm thinking mainly Georgiana Byrne-Jones, yeah, and Maria Zambaka, who were, Georgiana was married to Edward Byrne-Jones and Maria was his mistress. So, you know, a lot of this was interconnected in the in the sort of romantic life relationships that all these women had, as you said, in the same way that they, they weren't in the same way as the brotherhood were and very connected and working together as a team. They were a sisterhood because they were connected by the brotherhood. Yeah, and I think as well, um, I'm thinking mainly of Lizzie Siddle in this example. There, there were women in the exhibition, and I think this is one of the reasons why we wanted to have this section where we talked about them as heroines rather than talking about the exhibition as something that we went to see, was that Lizzie Siddle's life was incredibly tragic, even though she was very talented talented and achieved a lot as well and I think the exhibition did really well in elevating the successes or the talents of these women who didn't necessarily have like the mainstream success which they wouldn't have been able to have anyway even if they hadn't have been linked to the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood but it felt like it was almost like unearthing these bedroom artists if that makes sense like and thinking about Lizzie Siddle as well, you know more about it immediately than I do, and I can't quite remember. Who dug her up? No. Uh, uh, Dante did. Allegedly, that may be an urban myth, but... Yeah. But like, oh, no, actually, I... no, I think it is true that he buried her, because he was selfish, he buried her with a book, he was so distraught when she died that he buried her with a book of his poetry, then realised that that poetry was actually really great and then dug it her back up and got the book of poetry and then, like, published it afterwards. Yeah. And so these women's bodies and these women's, like, as muses, using air quotes, you can't see me off of the podcast, but, like, these women as muses, that strips them away of any humanity. And I think what the exhibition did really well was take away the myth and just be like, no, here's what they did and here's what they were interested in rather than... Lizzie Siddle was dug up by Dante. I do. I think that's interesting, though, that with Liz, it, pertaining to Lizzie in particular, is that one of the things that they had there was a lock of her hair. Mm. I think it had been sent. It, Dante had kept it or something. I might be misremembering, but. Lizzie was so famous for her hair. That was the main selling. And you're right. And that they had to pair it alongside her own work. I thought was really interesting. This iconic thing about her that made her so desirable in the first place. Yeah, because we should say she was the model for a feeling. Amongst lots of other things, but that's the most famous one. This isn't going to talk about why we think Lizzie Siddle deserves much more attention than she gets. I find the image of her and I'm talking about the image not the actual person fascinating because she stands in for this tragic dead girl trope and especially in a feel-up painting the long red hair of her in the water holding the flowers and like she was so much more than that and her body and like the fact that her body is that, that the model for that painting but also like that her body was dug up like her body is linked so much to so many different things in the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. No I think that's true and I, what I found most striking about the whole thing is the there were women artists there that I had never really heard of Evelyn de Morgan who was a really extraordinary painter in her own right she did the kind of hero picture well one of the hero pictures for all the uh, publicity for the exhibition is night and sleep which she did which is personifications of night and sleep sprinkling poppies over the, the world and it's incredible painting like huge it takes up a whole wall and this is a vivid vivid pink and vivid red but she also painted this wacky painting called Queen Eleanor and Fair Rosamond, which I think is from Arthurian legend. And there's dragons in there. 
and there's flying babies. It's really extraordinary and so weird. And we were both stood there looking at it, being like, this is like one of the weirdest paintings I've ever seen. But she was technically so brilliant and just incredible and very much on a par with the brotherhood but just no one's she's not that well known in comparison joanna wells was the same there was interestingly as well one of the kind of links in a bit to what we were talking about in sanderton is that one of the key people that one of the key women that was featured was fanny eaton who was a jamaican born model for the v raphaelite brotherhood and she often posed in uh, paint she was put into paintings about Egyptians and a lot of biblical stories as well. And she was really, really prolific and sort of grand, one of the most famous models that there were. And interestingly, in 2018, uh, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote, the Voice newspaper listed Eaton alongside women like Diane Abbott, Mary Seacole, Olive Morris, as among eight black women who had contributed to the development of Britain. So she was a huge figure. Again, not very well heard of in comparison to John Everett Millet, William Holman Hunt. And I, a lot of the time, historically, people have heard of these people. But Fanny made such a massive splash in the art world, but yet you've never heard of her. And I think that's what made the exhibition so interesting is that, it, as I said before, it really threw a spotlight onto all these different women that you've never really heard of who were incredibly talented and incredibly beautiful and had made a huge cultural impact in their day. And the sad thing is, a lot of them made a massive cultural impact in their day, and then ended up sort of alone, with no money. Like Fanny Cornforth, who was in Found, which is a a Rossetti painting, ended up in the workhouse with severe dementia. And she'd been one of the most famous and well-known women of her time. And had had a relationship with Rossetti as well, like Mm. a romantic relationship with him. And I think the thing about Fanny Cornforth as well, which actually has a nice similarity with Emma Hamilton who we talked about in our very first episode is that she came from not not at all a prestigious background she was completely working class in the exhibition it talked about her lack of education and how she was completely different to the pre-Raphaelite brotherhoods because she spoke with a working class accent and I think that that is also something that came through in the exhibition of like these women had come from nowhere to be models. And I think we sometimes dismiss models even now. And that's definitely what I remember taking out of the Emma Hamilton exhibition was as being a sitting for these painters or being a model and right through to the pre-Raphaelites was a way of gaining social currency as well. It was a way of earning money that could propel you further in society as well absolutely yeah that and that's why they're heroines is because actually i think they deserve to be heroines it's because Mm -hmm. in their time they made such a big impact and then faded out whereas the men artistically they stuck in people's minds and i think it was important that this exhibition did show that what the one criticism i would well one of the criticisms i would have of it is that there's still a very high proportion of pre-raphaelite brotherhood work in there yeah yeah less so than I thought I was going into I thought there would be more work by the women but even like Effie Miller who did paint and she did really lovely little watercolors there wasn't very much work by her it was all her husband's work Mm. and Christina was the same it was all her brother's work even though she was a very talented there was a, a little bit but she was also a very talented painter and a beautiful poet and so even in the point where there were members of the sisterhood who did have they weren't all painters even the ones that were still had a big chunk of the the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood in there. So the way that the exhibition was set up is that each woman got a section and 
a lot of them, the section was pri- was solely dedicated to the work of their husband, the work of their lover, the work of whoever that they happened to appear in. So mm. I think it was still very, very heavily influenced by the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood to the point where there was one room where you walk in and there's a semicircle of all the photos of the men <laughs> pointing out which woman they were connected to. Yeah. It just seemed like a weird choice. Like, Rosettean. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> Because we were like, oh, is that the end? <laughs> no. <laughs> and here are the men. <laughs> no, there was another half of the exhibition, but it was yeah. just like, just to remind you, here are the guys. <laughs> I think it's hard as well. I def- I think we had this conversation when we were going around the exhibition, but I just kept thinking of the Emma Hamilton exhibition mm. that we went to at the Maritime Museum in Greenwich and how like amazing that was, but how we spent like three hours in that exhibition mm. going around because it was so big and so stuffed full of paintings that she'd modelled for, but also everything else in there were new interpretations of, like, her performance art and stuff, which was just, like... Oh, it was so good. And it still is one of the best exhibitions I've ever been to. And obviously, there's more stuff of Emma Hamilton because of who she was married Mm. to, the documentation that she left behind, whereas Fanny Cornford was Rossetti's housekeeper. How much documentation is there of her life, really? And also, it's not the remit of the National Portrait Gallery to do that to uncover these histories and I think maybe unfavorably that was in my mind as well when when I was going around that with Emma Hamilton it was done chronologically of her life and of Nelson and her other husband played a big part in that but not to the extent that it felt like these women were anchored down by the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. Thank you for listening to this episode of Never Marry Mitford. Please like and subscribe and comment if you want to because it makes us more visible. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Maria Mitford as well. And you can get the podcast in wherever you get your podcast from. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, any other ones. We haven't checked if you can get it anywhere else, but you probably can. I know you can because I have an Android and you can definitely get it on Google Podcasts. There we go. So, there you go. <laughs> Bye. Bye.